Good morning. My name is Matt Tully. Uh, I'm a mission group leader here at Hope. I've been at, my wife and I have been at Hope for over a decade. And uh, I want to start this morning by going a little bit off script and just a quick comment about this baby dedication that we just all got to be a part of. It's a beautiful thing. It's a cute thing, right? We love seeing those cute little babies up there. Uh, but, but as I was watching, I was struck by the fact that in a world that increasingly feels chaotic and feels even antagonistic to God and the gospel, as we believe here in our church, it's so encouraging to see Christian parents commit the next generation to our Heavenly Father. And all of us, parents and non-parents alike in this room, people who are members of this church, we all share the responsibility and privilege of discipling that next generation together. So when you see these parents standing up here and these children, I hope that all of us feel a sense of ownership of what's going on here. It's not just them, it's all of us who are called to commit to these children. So let's help each other do that. All right, uh, back on script here. On June 23rd, 2018, a group of 12 boys between the ages of 11 and 16, along with their 25-year-old coach, entered the Tam Luang Nang Non Cave in northern Thailand. At nearly six and a half miles long, the cave system consisted of many different tunnels and caverns, and even featured an underground river. And they were enjoying their time in the cave, but before long, it began to rain. And it kept raining. Monsoon season came early. It rained so much that soon water was pouring into the cave system, both from the main entrance and from hundreds of cracks and fissures in the ceilings and the walls, and in no time, passages that had previously been completely dry were completely flooded, trapping the boys and their coach. Well, within hours, a rescue team had, be, had been put together, and within days, experienced cave divers, divers from around the world had assembled at the cave's entrance. And after over a week, a week, the divers finally made first contact with the boys and with their coach. And they were able to establish a guideline, a rope running from the entrance of the cave through miles of flooded tunnels and finally to the cavern where the boys were trapped. And as the waters continued to rise and oxygen levels in that cavern steadily decreased, the rescue team came to a startling conclusion. There was only one way to get them out. They would need to dive them out one at a time all two and a half miles back to the entrance of the cave. One news report recounts, with each boy, the divers carried out a choreographed underwater ballet. They would hold on to the guideline with one hand and use the other hand to hold on to a strap on the boy's vest as he floated face down, wearing a face mask attached to an oxygen tank. The divers did this while maneuvering around obstacles in the darkness and switching the boys from side to side, depending on the hazards they encountered. And incredibly, amazingly, this worked. 
For days, the divers worked tirelessly to bring one boy out at a time, each one safely delivered, as it were, from death to life. But on the final day of the rescue, as the rescue team was bringing out the last few boys, a diver named Chris made a critical mistake. He recounts, I was moving one of the boys from my left hand to my right hand, and I managed to let go of the guideline, which cave divers use to navigate in zero visibility. Now, thankfully, unlike most of us, Chris didn't panic, but he instead eventually found an electrical cable that had been run previously, which he assumed would also lead to the cave entrance. But as he grabbed that electrical cable and started to swim again, in this disorientation, he started moving in the wrong direction. Not toward the entrance, toward light and air and safety, but deeper into that cave, toward more darkness, more water, toward death. Well, this harrowing story, and you'll have to wait till the end to find out how it all turned out, it's a great illustration of what our passage is about this morning. That guideline was actually a lifeline in the truest sense of the word. If the divers could just hold on to that line, it would lead them to safety. Well, this morning, Peter is going to give us our lifeline for the Christian life. The thing that we are called to hold on to with all our strength to get us through this dark, dangerous, deadly world that we face. And this world, this life that we live, as we heard last week from Pastor Jeremy, is marked by suffering. And that is one of the main obstacles that we are going to face. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. So please turn there with me. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. And if you like to take notes when you listen to sermons, I've broken my message up into three main points. Point one, the call the call. Point number two, the application. And point number three, the encouragement. So read the passage along with me, starting in verse 13. Preparing your minds for, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You pray for us. God, this world is dangerous. We face so many hazards. And sometimes our lives can feel so dark. 
we can feel so lost. We can feel like we're drowning. God, we need hope. We need something to look ahead to that assures us that there is a purpose in this, that there is meaning in this. And God, we know as Christians here in this room that you offer us the ultimate hope, the hope that we were made for. So God, help us as we hear this morning from your word to hold on to that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So point number one, the call. Set your hope. Set your hope. Follow along as I read again in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse is the foundational command of our passage today, and actually for the book of 1 Peter as a whole. It's also the very first command in this book. So far in verses 1 to 12, Peter has only given us indicatives, statements about the truth, but no commands. But here in verse 13, we find our first command, our first imperative. And notice the very first word, therefore. The glorious truths in verses 1 to 12 that Jeremy helped to explain last week are the foundation for Peter's command in verse 13. And we're going to see that pattern throughout the book of First Peter, far beyond this sermon. So we'll be listening for this as we keep going. Over and over again, Peter grounds his commands in the reality of what God has already done for us and who we are as his people. So let's unpack verse 13 together. But I want to do that in a reverse order. So look with me at the final section of the verse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the core of Peter's call to us. Set your hope. My first question, what are we called to hope in? Well, look what Peter says. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, set your hope on the return of Christ. The day Jesus comes back to finish what he started and usher in a new creation. That's the grace that's in store for us as God's people. Peter's actually already talked about this, referred to this earlier in the book. Remember what he says in verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance that God has in store for us is the eternal life that we will enjoy with Christ forever. And if you think about the Bible, God's Word describes this inheritance, our hope, in many different ways. Paradise, God's, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the presence of God, eternal rest, the new Jerusalem. And what do all of these pictures have in common? God is at the center of each of them. So what is the Christian's hope? What is to be our lifeline? Our hope is that one day, Jesus is coming back, and we will be with him forever. But now we come to our second question. How do we set our hope on Jesus' return? 
This is where I think things get pretty interesting for us. Let's read the beginning of verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. The first phrase there, preparing your minds for action, it literally means gird up the loins of your mind. You probably didn't think you were going to hear the word loins this morning. The image here is of someone wearing a long robe, as people did in biblical times, and tucking it up into their belt so that they could move more freely, so they could run or they could work. Right? Uh, one commentator writes that the modern equivalent would be something like, roll up your sleeves. And what's it mean to be sober-minded? It's the opposite of letting our minds be intoxicated with the things of this world. It's remaining spiritually sharp in terms of what we think and how we respond and the things that we're drawn to. And then notice another thing, one more thing that Peter says about how we're to set our hope fully. Not partially, fully. Not mostly, fully. When it comes to hoping in Jesus and his return, we are called to commit. How much do you hold on to that guideline if you're underwater in a dark cave? Fully. The Bible calls us to set our hope fully on Jesus's return. So if I were to summarize this, What is Peter getting at? What's his main point in this first verse? Here's what I think he's saying. Setting your hope on Jesus and his return requires intentionality. It doesn't just happen. We don't coast into hope. You know, one problem that I think that we have often in our culture today is that the word hope has lost a lot of its meaning. Right? When we use the word hope, my guess is that we use it mostly in a passive sense. I hope it doesn't snow again. True. I hope the new Star Wars series releasing on Disney Plus soon is good. Also true. Where's Chris Wormskirch when you need him? Uh, I hope the Cubs make it to the World Series again. Not really true for me. I don't really care about sports, but I'm trying to connect with you who do. But That kind of passive hope is not the kind of hope that we're called to as Christians. That's not what he's talking about here. And hope is also not merely a warm sentimentality about the future, right, as we sit in the safety and comfort of our cozy homes. No, the hope of the Christian is the kind of hope that a soldier takes into battle. Garbed with the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shield of faith. The hope of the Christian is an active hope, a confidence in God's promise of ultimate redemption, and a focusing on that promise in the here and now, even though it has not yet been realized. It's clinging to a truth we believe, but know will be tested. It's pushing forward to a destination that we can see. We know where we're going, but we know it's still a long way off, and it's still through enemy enemy territory. That is the hope to which we have been called. And it's a great and glorious, life-giving hope, a hope of final victory, sure victory, and ultimate rest with Jesus. And yet it's a hope that right now, we have to fight to hold on to. 
day in and day out. So my question to you, my question to me, are you in that fight today? Are your sleeves rolled up and are you holding on to the hope of Jesus' return with both hands? So that's the call, the first and most foundational command of the book of 1 Peter. Set your hope on Jesus' return. Point number two, the application. Be holy like your heavenly Father. Be holy like your heavenly Father. So in verses 14 to 19, these next few verses, Peter highlights a key way that actively hoping in Jesus should impact our lives as Christians. This is what that hope looks like in practice. Now follow along as I start reading in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now first, I want you to notice how Peter starts off this command with a statement about our identity. There it is again. As obedient children. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians here. Those of us who have already believed in and been saved by Jesus. And because of that, we have been adopted into God's family as children. And I'm convinced that the doctrine of adoption is one of the most beautiful and richly meaningful doctrines in all of Scripture. Listen to what Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4. He writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that our redemption was so that we might receive, what? Adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So get this, get this. So you are no longer a slave. You are not a slave in God's eyes, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In his best-selling book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, and we can't throw that away. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Our adoption as children of God stands at the heart of what it means to be saved. And notice, though, what Peter says about that identity. He says that out of that identity, we should resist the passions of our former ignorance, the ways that we thought and the things that we did before we were God's children, and instead strive to be holy like God is holy. And when you think about it through the lens of a parent-child relationship, this command makes a lot of sense. You know, as a kid, my dad was always working on house projects, right? And I remember watching him cut boards and hammer nails and paint walls, always with a pencil in his ear. Are you carpenters out there? You know what I'm talking about. And that vision of my dad with a pencil on his ear is emblazoned in my memory, and it's one of my most cherished memories of my dad. And now that I'm an adult, 
uh, and I have my own house, I'm finding that I'm more like my dad than I realized, right? I've really enjoyed working on projects, and I've taken to putting a pencil on my ear, just like my dad. And the other day, I was working on something in the basement when I heard a voice behind me say, hey, dad, look. So I stood up, and I turned around, and what do I see? I see my three-year-old son, Brooks, a huge grin on his face and a pencil on his ear, just like his dad. Children imitate their parents. It's natural. And it's natural for us as redeemed, regenerated children of God to imitate our Heavenly Father, pursuing holiness that reflects His holiness. Right now, we're still sinful and imperfect. If you meet a Christian who says, I'm perfect, that's a good sign they're not a Christian. They don't understand. We will never be holy just like God is holy. But that's not what this verse is calling us to. Our lives should reflect, they should be marked, though, by a pursuit of holiness that reflects God's own holiness. Because that's what children do. Let's keep reading. Look at verses 17 to 19 with me. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds— Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Now first, I want you to notice again where Peter starts, again with our identity as God's children. So that's still here, that's still present in these verses but he keeps going. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, throughout our lives on this earth. Now, the question we need to ask is, what kind of fear? What are we supposed to be afraid of here? Well, to answer that question, we need to keep reading. Notice what he says in verses 18 to 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were saved from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what? With the precious blood of Christ. So again, let me try restating what Peter's saying here. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, a son or a daughter of God, then you should be concerned that your character match your confession, that your life be consistent with your theology. Why? Because the cost of your salvation was far beyond even the most valuable things this world can produce. The cost of your salvation was something truly precious. The very blood of God. Now, we hear hear the word precious, like we hear the word hope, and we often don't have a very robust idea of it. We too often think of things like precious memories. Do y'all remember what I'm talking about there? Those Uh, Those little ceramic figurines, uh, most of them look like small children with extra large heads and the occasional angel wings. Now, I'm not knocking those. If you have some of those on your mantle right now and you're like, hey, hands off my precious memories, that's fine. All I'm saying is that sentiment, even the sentiment that we had this morning of these children up front, of oh, how precious. That's not what Peter's getting at here. Peter uses the word precious five times in this book, and each time he uses it in connection to Jesus. 
It's used to describe Jesus himself, Jesus' blood, our faith in Jesus, and the Christian who submitted his or her life to Jesus. When you read in this verse that Jesus' blood was precious, think costly. A few people have articulated the costliness of grace as well as Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We too often suppose that the essence of grace is that our account has been paid in advance. And because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap. In contrast, real grace is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Jesus' blood was precious. And that should also instill in us a healthy sense of fear. Fear that we would do anything to dishonor that sacrifice. And the theme of fear is actually pretty important in the book of 1 Peter. In the first chapter right here, Peter encourages us to live our lives with fear in light of Jesus' sacrifice. In chapter 2, he takes it a step further and says directly, fear God. And then in chapter 3, he tells us not to fear persecution because of our faith. And while we can't unpack all of these nuances to what it means to fear God this morning, it is an important part of what it means to be a child of God. So here's a question for us this morning. Again, the question for me. Are you living your life with a healthy sense of fear before God? Or have you grown callous to the ugliness of sin in your life. When you hear, are are you quick to rationalize it away or distract yourself? I can see that in my life. When you hear of someone else's sin, someone else's, even their scandal, and man, it seems like we hear so many scandals these days. In the church, when you hear of someone else's scandal, do you look down your nose at them and say with the Pharisee, Good thing I'm not like those other people. Abusive leaders, corrupt politicians, unfaithful spouses, lazy employees, racist bigots. Or do you stand far off, your head down, praying with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hear me. A rock-solid hope a confidence in what Jesus has already done for you and your salvation and his return should result in a passionate commitment to holiness as God's child. Now again, don't get me wrong. We all fall short continuously. The war against indwelling sin within us rages. We all feel it. You know, if If you're married, feel free to give your spouse a knowing nudge right now. The question is not, are you perfect? The question is, are you fighting for holiness? And if your answer is no, not really, if you're being honest, you should feel a sense of fear because your complacency is an affront to the precious blood of Jesus. Okay, so where are we at? 
Peter's call to us in verse 13 is to intentionally set our hope fully on Jesus's return. And as we do that, our lives should be marked by the passionate pursuit of holiness as God's loved children, eager to imitate our Heavenly Father. So now let's turn finally to the last two verses of our passage and our final point, the encouragement. The encouragement. Your salvation was planned before the creation of the world. Your salvation was planned before the creation of the world. Right, so in verses 17 and 19, what we just looked at, Peter's talking about who we are as children of God and what that looks like in our lives. But it's, it's kind of like he can't stop himself, right? So in verses 20 and 21, he dives deeper into the wonder of what God did for us through Jesus. He pulls back the curtain, so to speak, on God's plan, his big plan of salvation, and gives us this incredible bird's eye view of what God has been doing. So now look with me at verses 20 and 21. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. In other words, the Father's plans for Jesus, for the Son, were revealed in these last times for the sake of you, Christians, who through him are believers in God. I want to stop there. Don't miss what he's saying here. Before the ancient mountains were young, before water first flowed down hills and into valleys, before the first bush sprouted green leaves for the first time, before the first fish began to crisscross the deeps and the first birds started making nests in the first trees, before the first mouse dug its first hole, before the first man and the first woman stood up for the first time, and before that same man and that same woman took their first bite of that forbidden fruit, before all of that, God planned for his son to die and for you to be saved by believing in him. If that doesn't fill you with wonder and joy and confidence and a deep, deep hope, I don't know what will. And just to make sure we don't forget where this all began, Peter closes with a final beautiful reminder at the end of verse 21. God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and what? Hope are in God. And with that, Peter brings us all the way back to where we started. Hope. Hope in God. That's what will get us through this life in the face of suffering and in the face of our sin. It wasn't until he surfaced in a small cavern that seemed familiar that Chris realized he was swimming in the wrong direction, deeper into the bowels of that dark, flooded cave. So what did he do? He stopped. He stopped swimming. That's the first, first step. He got his bearings, and he eventually found that guideline again. And then he didn't let go. 
And even though one diver lost his life as part of the rescue, all 12 boys and their coach made it out of that cave alive because of the heroic rescue divers and because of that guideline. Christian, speaking to Christians right now, are you holding on to your hope today? Or have the things of earth caused you to loosen your grip just a bit? Or have you let go? Gotten turned around and maybe even started swimming in the wrong direction? All right, if you're feeling a sense of conviction right now, don't push it away. I know how tempting it is to do that. We don't like that feeling. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. Embrace it for a moment. It wasn't too late for Chris in that cave, and it's not too late for you this morning. Set your hope on Jesus' sure return, and then live your life as a holy child of your Heavenly Father. Now, one very practical idea for us this week. What if you wrote four simple words on a note card and put it up on your bathroom mirror? Jesus is coming back. It's super simple. Try it this week. Just one way to help you hold on to your hope. Now, a quick word to those who are not Christians here. Do you want this hope? A hope that doesn't come from you and what you can do? A hope that isn't determined by your worst day or by your best day? A hope that's anchored in eternity past and yet pulling you forward to an eternity yet to come? You can have that hope. Embrace Christ's sacrifice for you. Place your faith and hope in God. Pray with me. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, we hope. Help us to hold on with both hands. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.